This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. All right, uh, so good morning. Can everybody hear me okay? Because I am a soft-spoken person. Okay, good. All right. Um, so before I get started, I would like to preface this talk um, because I've had the great blessing of being able to meet many of you here. And I've come to realize that there is definitely a spectrum in which if you put philosophers and theologians at one end and scientists at the other, I am definitely at the far end of a scientist. Um, so with that being said, I really don't have the vocabulary and will probably misspeak in using words. Um, and I may not be able to answer many uh, questions on the uh, philosophical, theological uh, side of things. But nonetheless, I've done my best to try to integrate some of those components, but they are coming from me uh, as a practicing Catholic. And so there are going to probably be some flaws in that. Uh, but anyways, I would like to start off with uh, defining biochemistry. As a professor of biochemistry, I get plenty of textbooks from publishers. And one of the things I like to do is to flip open and to read the definitions that different textbooks have for biochemistry. And so I have four different definitions up here. Uh, the top two come from textbooks that are um, affectionately known as the so-called Bible of biochemistry. Uh, so oftentimes these textbooks are used uh, for the undergrad um, biochem courses. So if we take uh, the top one, for instance, um, uh, which is by Vote and Vote, uh, they have a pretty uh, short and sweet uh, definition of biochemistry is the study of the chemistry of life. And so even reading through the other definitions, um, life is one of those words uh, that often appears. And so for me, of course, life can mean quite a few things. Uh, but one thing that comes to mind is the Bible verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so I feel that uh, life definitely um, has um, a profound uh, definition to it. And so whether uh, the language of chemistry is sufficient to explain it um, is probably um, something to ponder. Uh, but anyways, uh, yes, looking at biochemistry, uh, the name is somewhat self-explanatory and that is largely built on biology and chemistry. Uh, biology, there's many subdisciplines uh, such as cell biology, molecular biology, physiology, and so forth. Um, and then in chemistry, it mainly comes from organic chemistry, and that's because many of the molecules we study are going to contain carbon. And then the other chemistry that we draw upon heavily is physical chemistry. Uh, the reason for that is because the laws of thermodynamics and chemical kinetics are at play. And so as far as the history of biochemistry, when did it come about? Uh, well, one of the earliest biochemical processes that was studied was fermentation. And so this goes all the way back to uh, the ancient Egyptians. But um, as time uh, progressed, um, people were interested in improving the quality and quantity of beer and wine. And so uh, they started to become interested in the process of fermentation. And they eventually worked out that um, if you could take sugar, uh, mix it with Baker's yeast extract, uh, you can get CO2 and ethanol from that uh, through the process of alcoholic uh, fermentation. And so that was something that uh, did eventually win the Nobel Prize and is considered um, uh, the start of modern biochemistry. And so with that being said, uh, biochemists, biochemists are interested in organisms and life. And so there are various hierarchical levels of organization. Uh, through most of my talk, I am going to focus on humans. And so that's what I have here in this uh, schematic. And so starting at the very basic level, uh, we have atoms. And then these atoms, of course, can be um, combined together through bonds to form molecules. Uh, sometimes these molecules can be quite large in nature, and so uh, that gives rise to uh, macromolecules. These macromolecules are inside cells, and that these are the basic components of um, cells. And then, of course, cells can specialize uh, to have different functions to form tissues. Uh, multiple tissues can come together to form organ systems and multiple organ systems uh, to give rise to um, humans. And so you could add an additional level that's not shown on here, and that would be the ecosystem and how um, humans interact with um, other life forms. So as far as biochemists, they are going to be primarily focused on macromolecules. Um, but uh, before I dive into macromolecules, I first just want to briefly touch upon uh, their components of what they're made of, uh, particularly the elements that are found uh, in these molecules. And so if we look at the periodic table, we know that there's over 100 elements that have been discovered, but about 88% of uh, biological molecules are composed of only four elements, and that is hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen. They're the ones uh, shown in green. And then the other 12%, um, mostly not quite, uh, but they are the ones shown in the um, reddish-orange color, uh, but mainly phosphorus and sulfur are, are two of the notable ones. 
And so uh, with just a handful of elements, in essence, uh, these um, uh, make up the molecules of life. And so these elements can then be um, uh, combined together through bonds uh, to form particular linkages that have been characterized into uh, several different groups. Uh, they are shown here in this table. It's not important that you uh, know what they are called. Um, the point being is you can see that there's lots of carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, there's some nitrogen, sulfur, and uh, phosphorus there. Um, but um, many of these groups have been well studied by organic chemists. And so because they've been well studied by organic chemists, we have an idea of how they are going to react and interact with other molecules. So there is a sense of uh, predictability um, in knowing that information. And so next, um, I'll move then on to macromolecules. Uh, that's what we largely focus on. And so are macromolecules uh, categorized? Uh, the answer is yes, they have four different classes. Um, but before I dive into these four different classes, I want to mention a very common theme uh, that comes up during um, biochemistry classes, and that is structure and function. And so structure is very intimately related um, to function. Uh, so oftentimes, if you know one or the other, uh, you can predict um, them. So as far as the four classes of macromolecules, uh, the first one at the top uh, is carbohydrates. And so carbohydrates, they have important roles in energy as well as uh, structure formation. Uh, the next class is nucleic acids. And so nucleic acids includes both DNA as well as RNA. In this particular schematic, uh, we can see DNA. And so DNA is simply, you can think of it as the instructions of a cell. It is the blueprint um, uh, that contains all the information to build the cell. Uh, the third class is proteins. Uh, proteins are the workhorses of the cell, so they're responsible for carrying out uh, many of the different functions. Uh, you can kind of think of them as being um, the little helper elves and making sure everything uh, gets done. And then the fourth class uh, would be lipids, also known as fats. And so lipids also are important for energy purposes as well as uh, structure. So those are the four different classes. Um, uh, but another important point to make is that these macromolecules are not just uh, interacting, um, but importantly, they're interacting with their environment, which is an aqueous environment. And so how they interact with water is also important, um, but also notable that, of course, uh, whether you're talking about an E. coli cell or a human cell, um, a large percentage of us uh, were composed of water, uh, up to 70%. And so uh, the one thing that I want to point out about water is that I find it um, uh, notable that it is composed of uh, three atoms. Uh, so we have two hydrogen and one oxygen. And so three, of course, is an important number, um, biblically speaking. Um, the Holy Trinity is another one uh, where you have um, uh, three. And so some people have used this uh, analogy to better understand the Holy Trinity of looking at water through uh, the different phases. Um, but of course, in the course of studying um, biology, pH is quite important that you need to be at neutral pH. And so the concentration of protons uh, is also um, important. And so protons aren't just uh, free in solution, uh, but instead they do interact with uh, water to give rise to hydronium ions. And so with that, I'd like to think that the uh, little extra proton might be uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary. <laughs> um, and so I have... Um, picked a picture that actually comes from the Basilica at Notre Dame. If you ever have ever had the opportunity to visit campus, it's a spectacular um, uh, place to see. But you'll note um, at the top up here, uh, we have uh, the Trinity. Um, so Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then they're crowning uh, Mary there. Okay, and so with that, um, macromolecules are an important uh, component of cells, and cells can be largely divided into uh, two different groups, uh, either prokaryotic or eukaryotic. And so an example of a prokaryotic cell is going to be bacteria, um, and then in the case of eukaryotic, it could be a plant or animal cell, for example. Uh, but just from a quick glance, you can see that uh, they are going to be composed of a uh, different number of macromolecules, and that uh, the prokaryotes are um, relatively simple compared to that of eukaryotic cells. All right, um, so um, biochemists are focused on macromolecules. Uh, that's a quick overview related to uh, the hierarchical levels of organization. And so now I would like to uh, focus in more on each of the different macromolecules. And so first I'll lead off with talking about uh, nucleic acids. Uh, that includes DNA and RNA. And so uh, nucleic acids, they are polymers, uh, meaning that they are made up of repeating uh, chemical units. And this unit for uh, DNA and RNA is known as a nucleotide. And so in the case of DNA, uh, we typically um, simplify this nucleotide to A, C, G, or T when we're talking about it. And so shown here is um, 
the chemical structure of a strand of DNA. It has uh, four nucleotides, uh, so we have T, A, C, and G here. And you can see uh, just a single uh, nucleotide that they have uh, denoted here in blue. So you can see what an individual building block uh, looks like. But in the case of DNA, it's not just a single strand. It's typically uh, double-stranded. And so this was something that was uh, worked out by Watson and Crick. And so in the case of uh, two strands, the way in which they interact is quite predictable uh, because we know that A will base pair with T and C will base pair uh, with G uh, to bring the two strands together. And so um, with that, however, um, even though we largely think of DNA as being a four-letter alphabet, uh, in reality it is not. Uh, there is a higher um, order of complexity to this uh, through chemical modifications. And so there's about a dozen different DNA modifications that can occur. Uh, these modifications are shown here on um, the, the nucleotides. Uh, the parts that are in red is what is chemically different compared to their parent building blocks. And so um, with this, the chemical structure has been changed. And as you might guess, the function also changes. And so what is the, the functional difference here? Well, uh, we know inside uh, humans, we are made up of heart cells, brain cells, liver cells, etc. Um, and so how is it that all these cells can have the same exact blueprint, um, but carry out vastly different functions? And so uh, one um, major reason for that is through what's known as, oops, uh, what's known as epigenetics or the epigenome um, because of these chemical modifications. And so what about RNA? Are there modifications? Is there more than a four-letter alphabet? Uh, the answer is yes. In fact, there's more than 140 RNA modifications that have been discovered to date. And as far as um, what's the functional output in this, there's just way too many uh, to even go through. Um, but the one thing that I do want to point out is that uh, some of these modifications are absolutely essential for life, uh, so that if they are not there, um, the organism cannot uh, persist, uh, or and sometimes they can persist, but there's going to be a disease, um, some kind of pathological effect associated with it. Uh, so um, yeah, you can think of DNA and RNA now as being a much bigger alphabet uh, than just four letters. Okay, um, so that's nucleic acids. Uh, next, I would like to move on to proteins. And so for proteins, there's a small portion of a polypeptide chain or a protein chain shown here uh, in black, um, but the individual building block here is going to be an amino acid. And so that's what is shown here in green. And so for um, proteins, uh, humans have 20 different amino acids. And so you can see already that if you compare DNA and RNA, we have a four-letter alphabet, largely speaking. Um, but then in the case of protein, there's 20 different um, letters in this case. So there's uh, much more diversity um, in the structure and function as a result. And then uh, for carbohydrates, these are also known as sugars. Uh, we can see a, um, a small short polysaccharide here uh, depicted at cellulose. And uh, its individual building block is indicated in pink. Um, this building block uh, for cellulose is glucose. And then lastly, we have lipids. Uh, lipids are unique because they are not polymers in contrast to the other three classes. And so what's um, uh, common among them is that they all have hydrophobic character. And so what does that mean? It's just a fancy way of saying that they all have some kind of um, part that is greasy or oily to them. And so the significance of that is that uh, if we're working in an aqueous environment, uh, we know that oil and water don't mix. And so as a result, that's a way of creating a barrier um, and is important for cell membranes. Okay, um, so that is uh, the four different uh, classes of macromolecules. And so, of course, in these macromolecules, we're going to have a cell and in order for these macromolecules, there has to be some way for them to exist. And so I've already mentioned to you that uh, DNA is the blueprint uh, for the cell. And so it's important to understand uh, how information flows uh, inside a cell. Uh, perhaps this is something that we all better understand now because of the COVID-19 vaccine. But anyways, the flow of information uh, goes from DNA uh, to RNA to protein. And so uh, in the context of the cell, of course, um, the amount of macromolecules that are going to be generated is vastly different. But I would like for you to think about a human cell. And so if you think about uh, just the vast number of uh, each of these uh, components that are going to be in a human cell, uh, which one is going to be more abundant with respect to unique molecular species? 
Um, are there more DNA molecules? Are there more RNA molecules or more protein molecules inside human cells? That's what quite a few people think. But yeah, actually, so if, if you're talking about E. coli, um, you might be, be closer. But in the case of human, RNA uh, vastly yeah, exceeds uh, protein. And so the reason for that is because, yeah, there's quite a few RNA uh, molecules that get transcribed, um, but very few of them actually code for protein. So you have uh, more than hundreds of thousands of RNA molecules in cells. You can also have more than 100,000 um, uh, unique species of uh, protein as well inside a human cell. But um, even though it's a lot of RNA, if you talk about size, uh, DNA is by far the largest. Chromosomes are huge if you look at their molecular weight compared to any individual RNA or protein. And so in the case of uh, thinking about DNA, because it does contain the blueprint of life, of course, people have, uh, scientists have wanted to uh, correlate this with de developmental complexity. Uh, so if humans are the most complex, uh, you would then um, predict that humans are going to have the largest genome. Um, but as the genome ha size has been determined uh, for organisms, uh, that simply isn't true. And so that's what is shown here um, in this schematic. Uh, so at the bottom on the x-axis is the number of base pairs uh, in the genome. And then if you uh, start at the top and work your way to the bottom, uh, the complexity uh, increases. And so, oops. And so in the case of humans um, uh, down here at the bottom, uh, there's about 3 billion base pairs uh, for 23 uh, chromosomes. And you can see that that is clearly not uh, the largest here. Even a single cell paramecium has more DNA than we do inside its cell. So what does correlate? Uh, well, scientists have realized that they've had to look closer at the DNA. And so one of those things is what is coding uh, versus non-coding. And so I mentioned in the case of humans that there's a lot of non-coding. And so most of it is actually, uh, it does not code for protein. So if you take that ratio of the sequence that accounts for non-coding uh, DNA and compare that to the total genome size, that is a better predictor for developmental complexity. And so that's what's shown here in this plot. On the far right side, um, the ratio is highest for humans. Um, whereas if you're working towards the, uh, the left side, uh, this is where you have the single-celled um, prokaryotic organisms as well as the single-celled eukaryotic organisms. Um, plants was another one that, if you might recall from the previous slide, that also had genome size uh, larger than humans, um, but um, they're shown here with the green bars. And you can also see that other uh, developmental complexity is less uh, when you look at this particular um, uh, math, this ratio. All right. So the last thing that I would like to uh, point out is that biochemistry uh, can be um, definitely applied. And so scientists have recognized that nature has optimized information storage in the form of DNA. And so um, rather than using a digital technology to store DNA, uh, it is likely in the future that we will be storing our DNA uh, using uh, some kind of organism, DNA. And so the reason for that is because the amount of information that it can store uh, is rather impressive. And so if we take um, a human person, uh, it has approximately 100 trillion cells. And in that person, if you were to take all the DNA that it has inside of it, it could store 150 zettabytes of data. <laughs> and so as far as the amount of data that currently exists in the world, it's estimated to be about 80 zettabytes. And so one zettabyte equals, I believe, a billion terabytes. <laughs> um, so you can see that uh, the DNA that is found in one human person uh, would be enough to store the current amount of data in the world and for, provide um, almost a complete backup as well. So um, scientists are, are currently working on this, but of course uh, DNA has its problems uh, with reading and writing in a, a timely manner. But nonetheless, you can definitely see the complexity or simplicity um, because um, scientists get to choose how they're going to encode uh, the message of using ACGNT. Uh, so this example shown here has uh, everything is made of atoms. Uh, so you could encode it based upon the word. Uh, you could do it based on syllable or uh, letter. Okay, um, so that is um, one area of looking at simplicity and complexity, uh, mainly from a uh, nucleic acids perspective. And so next, I would like to uh, talk about proteins, uh, because as I mentioned, they are the workhorses of the cell. They're responsible for carrying out a lot of reactions. And so structure and function is really important. Um, biochemists have the ultimate goal of trying to determine a 3D structure 
for all of nature's um, proteins or macromolecules. Um, and so in the case of proteins, that's going to be a lot. Um, so I would like to walk you through uh, protein structure. Uh, so protein structure gets organized into four different levels. Um, the first level is known as primary structure. And primary structure is simply the order in which the amino acids are connected um, from end to end. And so, um, you know, as far as what are the possibilities for this? Um, well, uh, the sequence diversity is huge. In humans, most of the proteins are going to be 300 to 500 amino acids in length. Uh, that's probably close to the average. But if you do the math just using uh, a protein that's 100 amino acids in length with 20 different amino acids, uh, the number of possible sequences is rather huge. It's on the order of uh, 10 to the 130th power. And so we heard yesterday about the number of particles in the universe being, I believe, to the 80th power. Uh, so we can see that this just isn't um, possible. So uh, scientists have experimentally determined quite a few structures. Um, scientists, when they solve these structures, are required to share them with the scientific community, and they do so through what's known as the protein data bank. And so any of us can go there and download um, structures. I looked last night, and there's over 192,000 structures that have been deposited. But of course, they're not all unique. Uh, there are certain proteins that we have lots of structures of. But um, from the schematic, uh, what I would like for you to take away is that you can see that even though we're looking at just a handful, you can see that they have different structures. They have different shapes. And so uh, just by looking at the shape, for instance, uh, if we take one that uh, clearly looks kind of like a donut, a ring, uh, you can imagine how uh, perhaps this might be something that would uh, clamp onto DNA or something like that. Okay. Uh, so that is uh, protein structure from primary structure. Uh, what about the other levels? Um, so there is secondary structure. And so secondary structure is uh, where the amino acids are, uh, that they can um, group together to form different structures. Um, sometimes they twist together as a helix. Other times they pack together as sheets. And then the tertiary structure is simply where these helices, our sheets, are uh, where they reside at in 3D space with respect to one another. The fourth level of structure is quaternary structure, uh, but not all proteins have quaternary structure. Uh, that's because it's referring to uh, one protein interacting with uh, another protein. Okay, and so with the structures that have been solved um, that are in the protein data bank, uh, one thing that uh, has emerged from this is that uh, structure is more conserved than sequence. So there's definitely a diversity in sequence, but uh, you start to see uh, recurring themes of certain structures that show up. And so when you start to see uh, certain structures reappearing, uh, for instance, um, there are certain structures uh, such as a zinc finger uh, that is known to bind to DNA. So if you see this structure in a protein, uh, you can make the guess that this might be a protein that interacts with DNA. Likewise, there are certain structures that interact with uh, RNA, and you can make the prediction that they interact with RNA based upon their structure. All right, uh, so with that, of course, this depends upon uh, experimentally solving structures. Uh, so wouldn't it be nice if uh, scientists could just look at the sequence alone and be able to predict uh, the 3D structure? And so this has been a long-standing goal of, uh, in the protein folding field. And so uh, recently, I know some of you are aware that AlphaFold um, is out there. And so AlphaFold is uh, definitely made a splash um, because it has a remarkably higher accuracy in predicting 3D structures compared to um, other uh, methods that are out there. And so you can see that uh, the AlphaFold database um, has almost a million uh, protein structure predictions there. Uh, so you can see how quickly it has outpaced the protein data bank, which has existed for years and years, um, and trying to experimentally solve structures. Um, but of course, they are predictions at this point. It's not 100% uh, accuracy by any means. And so we're still going to be uh, trying to solve structures experimentally, but also uh, working on um, improving the predictions. Okay, so with that, um, of course, when biochemists are going to be studying uh, macromolecules, uh, they need to be able to um, have a source of macromolecules. So I just want to talk about this from an experimental perspective for a little bit. So um, humans is what we ultimately want to understand, you know, uh, the functioning of a human cell, but uh, it's not ethical to sometimes uh, experiment with humans. And as a result, um, uh, the, also the complexity is difficult. Uh, model organisms have really um, rose. 
up and played important roles, uh, whether it be something that's single-celled like a yeast uh, or something that's more complex like mice. Um, they've um, played important roles. Um, also not shown here is bacteria, but E. coli has been a critical uh, model system over the years. Now, um, sometimes biochemists do work with organisms and cells, um, but other times, uh, such as myself, I'm more of a classical biochemist, and so I do a lot of test tube biochemistry. And so in that case, I'm just mixing together the minimal amount of components that I need to study a particular reaction. And so, of course, where am I going to get the material? Um, well, you know, oftentimes we want to study human proteins, um, and so biochemists have been able to come up with a way of expressing a human protein in bacteria, in E. coli. So we can grow up lots of E. coli, um, but in the process of doing so, of course, we eventually have to bust open the cells. And when we bust open the cells, it is full of all the E. coli proteins and RNA uh, and so forth. And so we have to be able to isolate that one particular human protein um, in this complex mixture. And so um, through uh, chemistry, uh, different chromatography methods, uh, we can, through a series of steps, uh, go from this very complex mixture of 3,000 plus proteins and be able to get our um, one human protein of interest. And that's the, what we can add then to a test tube to study. The one thing that I do want to point out with um, uh, test tube biochemistry is the volume of our reactions is that they are on the microliter scale. So they're uh, not something that we're um, doing, you know, liters worth uh, for reaction. Uh, so they, they typically get pipetted. I wanted to walk you through um, one example of a test tube reaction. The one that I picked out is DNA replication, since it's something that's so fundamental to life. Anytime the cell divides, it's going to have to have a copy of its instructions, um, but also viruses. Uh, we know that viruses, um, in order to make more viral progeny, uh, they need to have their genetic material copied as well. And so uh, what are the minimal components if you want to study uh, DNA replication? It has been worked out over the years. And so um, one thing, of course, would be having a DNA strand. Uh, we know that uh, that one DNA strand is going to determine whether uh, we're going to string together A, C, G, or T. Uh, we also have to have the building blocks in the reaction. And so what, of course, is going to then link together uh, the nucleotides, uh, that is going to be a protein. Um, and I mentioned that proteins are the workhorses. And so oftentimes, uh, proteins are enzymes. And so enzymes are nature's catalyst. And these catalysts are responsible for enhancing reaction rates. Uh, the order of magnitude in which they can do this is rather impressive uh, when you consider it uh, relative to a chemical catalyst. Uh, so for chemical catalysts, they're generally speaking in the order of 100 to 10,000 times. Uh, they'll speed up the reaction compared to an uncatalyzed reaction. Um, but in the case of enzymes, um, Nature has designed them such that most of them are usually on the order of uh, 10 to the 12th to 10 to the 16th. Uh, some of them can be as high as 10 to the 20th and enhancing these reaction rates. Um, so in this case for DNA replication, uh, DNA polymerase is responsible for building up this polymer of stringing together uh, nucleotides. Uh, the other thing that's important for this uh, would be magnesium ions. And so in studying biochemistry, there has to be some kind of chemistry and chemical reactions involved in that. So I just wanted to um, briefly show you uh, one reaction, and this is um, one for uh, DNA polymerases. So on the left, I have uh, the cartoon schematic of the molecule, but then on the right, uh, this is actually taken from an experimentally determined 3D structure of a DNA polymerase. And so um, just looking at the key groups, uh, you need to have some phosphate groups there. Uh, the two metal ions are absolutely essential. And so this two metal ion mechanism isn't one that's just applicable to DNA polymerases, but it's applicable to most enzymes uh, that either synthesize nucleic acids or uh, cleave nucleic acids. Uh, so it's something that um, is really common. And then the other uh, molecule or the uh, other one that's important is this oxygen uh, for uh, connecting the nucleotides together. Now, uh, so once the biochemist uh, elucidates these mechanisms and understands it, uh, we can then use it uh, to design therapeutics, for instance. And so um, in the case of uh, DNA replication, uh, we have several different antiviral um, uh, drugs that have been developed. And so these have been incredibly successful uh, for HIV AIDS. The very first one to be approved uh, was AZT. And so again, just by simple chemical modifications, uh, we can change things. And so in the case of AZT, it has uh, three nitrogens in the place where um, normally you have OH there. And so by putting the three nitrogens there, this then inhibits replication. You can't connect the nucleotides together. 
Um, and so there are other uh, drugs that have been developed uh, for treating HIV AIDS. Uh, you may be asking, have they used this strategy for COVID-19? Uh, the answer is yes, um, but uh, the two drugs that have come to the market have not had much of an impact at all. Uh, so they may there might be an analog out there um, that might eventually work, but um, at this point there hasn't been one. The other thing that I would like to point out is that much of this work on DNA replication uh, was elucidated using um, bacterial enzymes, specifically E. coli DNA polymerases. And so again, having these model systems, um, they're well-behaved, uh, much more better than uh, your human enzymes, uh, that it, it really speeds up the process of understanding things. And when, even though they used E. coli enzymes to do this, the mechanism is the same for the human. Um, so you can really advance science um, using these model organisms as a result. Okay, um, the next example I have is uh, genome editing, uh, since most of us have heard of CRISPR. And so CRISPR is another example of how scientists have um, understood this in trying to isolate the minimal components. And so um, what is CRISPR? Most of us have probably heard, but in a very simple sense, it is the immune system for bacteria. Um, Bacteria also get invaded by viruses and they have to have a way um, to get rid of the virus and they do, the, do so uh, using CRISPR. And so for CRISPR, it works by having an enzyme, Cas9. Uh, Cas9 also works by the two metal ion mechanism that the DNA polymerase uh, used. And then uh, there are two RNAs. Uh, there's one RNA that's uh, shown here uh, in red and then the other RNA that is green and black. And so uh, when you have RNA, we know that there is a certain sequencing that we can predict base pairing. And so uh, there is a part of it that is going to be complementary that can base pair with uh, the genome of the viral DNA. And so as a result, um, Cas9 can be directed to that position of the viral DNA and get rid of uh, the DNA, the viral DNA that way. And then the bacteria um, rids itself of the virus. And so uh, once scientists have understood this, uh, CRISPR is one uh, that has been uh, utilized and so the way that um, scientists have improved this is by, rather than using two RNAs, uh, they use a single one. And so um, uh, the single one has minimized it. And of course, um, while there are applications that are not ethically correct, um, there are certain a lot of potential uh, for the good that it could have um, and powerfully impact. And so um, the early work in working out the minimal components uh, was done by Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier. Uh, this was work that was published in Science. Uh, they were the ones who showed the minimal components, but they did everything in a test tube. Uh, it was very simple. All uh, the work after that um, with Fong Zhang's group at MIT, they were the first ones to do things in mice and human cells. And so at the, the forefront of the CRISPR patent battle is really, um, is showing it in a test tube enough or did it actually have to be done inside cells? Uh, so you can see the simplicity and complexity uh, issues that are at play. And then um, CRISPR has been used uh, clinically and it's been uh, seen with mixed results, uh, but one example would be sickle cell anemia. Uh, for this particular patient, uh, she received one treatment and she has been free of symptoms uh, ever since. Uh, so uh, there's certainly the potential for incredible um, uh, uh, health impact. Okay, the next one I would like to uh, go through is biochemical pathways. Um, and so a huge branch of biochemistry is metabolism. And so uh, within a cell, you have to be able to uh, make molecules as well as uh, degrade them uh, into smaller pieces, into their building blocks, as well as generate energy in order to carry out these different processes. And so um, within humans, um, the metabolic pathways are uh, mapped here. You can't read anything because there's a lot. Um, so it's multi-step reactions, multiple enzymes, uh, these cascades that are working. And so they have been likened to uh, the transportation uh, system of a city. Uh, so you can think of them as, you know, following paths like cars where they can take lots of different routes. Uh, some of them are more like uh, the metro, uh, where the subway, you know, they're um, restricted to a certain path, but they can both um, work uh, simultaneously. And so likewise, you're going to have enzymes and stuff that are doing general reactions as well as those that are very specific. And so I just wanted to I'll look a little bit closer at um, uh, some biochemical pathways. I picked alcohol fermentation since it was one of the earliest processes um, to be studied. And so you can see here that uh, the input is glucose and that then goes on to uh, produce carbon dioxide as well as ethanol. And so even though this is a process that occurs uh, with yeast, 
you can see a very similar process that happens uh, biochemically in human cells. Uh, and so if you exercise, and once you start to become depleted of oxygen inside the cell, uh, there is going to be anaerobic um, conditions. And so as a result, uh, this glucose gets converted to lactic acid. Um, and so if you've ever felt sore after exercising, it is um, through that process. And so you can see here, um, these are two different uh, organisms, uh, yeast versus a muscle cell, but yet you can see the commonalities uh, that are occurring. Uh, the other thing that I would like to point out um, in speaking about metabolism uh, is that, you know, we eat food uh, to sustain our livelihood. And in eating this food, uh, this is something that, you know, we break down and then um, the parts become part of our cell in order to maintain our body as well as provide energy. Um, but in the case of uh, Holy Communion, when we uh, consume the Blessed Sacrament, it's a bit different in that we are transformed into the body of Christ. And uh, this was nicely captured uh, by St. Augustine. Uh, I believe he had a, a vision with Jesus on which he said to him, uh, I am the food of the mature. Grow then and you shall eat meat. You will not change me into yourself like bodily food, but you will be changed into me. And so uh, as a biochemist, I find that that is something uh, of course, that's um, more difficult to comprehend the mystery of that um, uh, for things. All right, and then lastly, um, I would like to end with the origin of life uh, since it has connections to emergence. And so we know that um, the origin ultimately was with the um, Big Bang, but of course, biochemists are focused on macromolecules. So which macromolecule uh, is implicated in the early origins? And that would be RNA. And so it is hypothesized that it was an RNA-only world uh, early on. Um, and so, of course, we can see how it has um, changed over time and that we are now in a DNA-RNA uh, protein world instead. And so with that, um, I have hopefully been able to show you several examples of um, simplicity and complexity related to macromolecules, but also from an experimental perspective um, of how scientists have been able to simplify um, the mechanisms and, uh, and use them in various ways. Um, so that's where I'll end. All right. All right, thank you very much, Dr. Brown. Um, and so yeah, uh, I'll open the floor to any questions. Oh boy. All right. Do you want the physicist question or the neuroscientist question first? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a biology question. Uh, yeah, I wanted to uh, uh, talk a bit more about non-coding RNA. Oh. So first, first, a clarifying question. Did you say that humans have one of the highest ratio of like coding to non-coding or vice versa? And uh, the second question is, um, so the common term for non-coding RNA is junk DNA? Oh, so, yes. Yeah, and so, yeah. like, how do you reckon with that? We talked about simplicity and complexity, working from simplicity, but this is just, like, waste, right? And stuff is just there and isn't doing anything useful. So how do you think about yeah. junk DNA from, like, a philosophical perspective? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, one of the reasons that this came about is because of the major advances in DNA sequencing and also, of course, um, being able to do RNA-seq. And so by looking at um, all the sequences that get generated by a cell, they've been able to show that, yeah, not all of these correlate uh, with uh, giving protein products. And so because of um, the advances in DNA sequencing, that's largely how they found out that there are so much non-coding RNA. And yes, the next question, of course, is, well, it is making all this RNA, but why? Um, is it junk or is it functional? And so there's, most of it has not been studied. It is kind of the black matter um, of the cell uh, that we don't uh, fully understand. But of the ones that they have started studying, yes, they do have functions. Um, so I believe that as we study more and more of it, there, there's not as much junk there as um, what has initially been, been thought. Yeah, thank you for this great talk. Um, I was just wondering, so you mentioned when you showed us the periodic table that there's a small category of compounds that contain these sort of heavy elements in the periodic table, like tungsten. Could you give some examples of what those might be? Yeah, some of those with tungsten and molybdenum, uh, they are uh, important for some of the enzyme mechanisms uh, for coordinating things because, of course, um, one of the reasons that they can enhance reaction rates so fast is because they get everything in the proper um, location and angle and everything that they need for the reaction to proceed. Thank you very much for the talk. Just a short technical question. 
you mentioned that modifications of DNA and you said that these are epigenetic modifications. I always thought that epigenetic modifications will not affect DNA itself, which is nucleotides, but for example, histone proteins that on which DNA is uh, folded. Yeah, you're right. So the histones are the other form that also contribute to epigenetics. Um, but in the case of DNA, um, the C5 methylation is the, by far the most common one. And so that is going to have a lot of impact on turning gene expression on or off. And so in one cell type, you might have a certain gene turned on, and then another one, it might be turned off. And so, yeah, some of that is done through histone modifications, but it can also be done at the DNA level. You mentioned CRISPR modification. So in a DNA, if you make changes, and you can make some changes in the genes, and the, uh, the person or the DNA remains the same for the person. But at some point, it becomes something else. I mean, it's a DNA that codes for some other organism. So when do you make a, dis I mean, a distinction? What is the point in which that uh, DNA or the is the same, remains the same for the same species or some other change happens that becomes something else. Or when they made this vaccine, RNA vaccines, so they modified it, they got a totally different thing. So what is the criterion for making this distinction? That's a question I do not know the answer to. <laughs> yeah, when they discover new uh, species and stuff, I honestly don't know how much difference there has to be in order for them to categorize something as being different. Um, if I can ask a question, so again, I want to go back to the, the DNA modification question. So, um, so these are so these so just so I understand what you're saying is it's it's still the same four base pairs, but in certain cases there's like an extra an extra little little hair that's stuck on it. Yes. And so it's it's the same base pair, but with a little bit but something slightly different on it. Uh -huh. Does that carry through in the DNA replication? So like if, if that hair is on this DNA and it's replicated, will that necessarily have that hair or will it just have the, a base pair? Like, yeah. Yeah. So that modification uh, does, it's not in the building blocks. It's something that gets added by an enzyme um, afterwards. Does that After happen during cell replication? Like with, at what point in the, like the life of an individual cell do those modifications happen and how is it, is it, because of other instructions elsewhere in the DNA that are telling you to put the modifications on? Yeah, so that's one of the impressive things that gets inherited, it gets passed on um, from, from cell generation to generation. And those enzymes have that memory of being able to install them at the, the proper places. Okay. Uh, this is more a comment and helps to the question on the evolution. Oh, and, uh, oh yes, so please. Remember that during DNA replication, it's semi-conservative, so that you know one new one parent strand gets a new one put on, and so the like the C5 methylation is on going to be on one half of the new the new double strand of DNA, and enzymes can recognize that and fix the other side because it's all complementary. Likewise, the histones are semi -rep during replication; they're semi-conserved, so half of the histones, if you will, have those modifications and they can be remembered. For uh, Fabasuni's question on evolution, you have to kind of remember a time scale. So you can have the mutations in the single gene, the woman that had her um, sickle cell anemia, right. presumably they used uh, stem cells from the blood, right? And then replaced it. Right. So you know you can take a bone marrow has the stem cells of the blood, so you can find the stem cell for the red blood cells. You can make that correction they actually know how to keep these cells fine in cell and in culture. And so they can then be replaced into the bone marrow of the same person. So you don't have the immune rejection phenomenon that normally occurs as well. And so that's presumably why this patient is doing so well, because they just made a single modification of a single gene in her own cells and then put them back. Mm -hmm. From an evolution point of view, you have to remember that evolutions over many, 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 many years, right? And you have a subtle mutation that this woman's progeny, so it's on her germ line was probably not modified. So her children would still probably inherit the sickle cell. Of course, if it's successful, they'll just treat it when they're a child and get it over with, right? Kind of thing. But evolution is like the, the, the example of the moth, white to brown, right? That's you, it's a population phenomena. So it's not like you're going to have intercourse one day and you're your baby is going to be brand new mutant. Okay, so just keep that in mind. <laughs>
Hello. <laughs> <laughs> question about um, the evolution in the cell anemia example. <clears throat> if her children inherit it and they are treated when they're children, then when if they then go on to have children, would, would, would the, uh, the children be corrected? If it happens before, it, it depends before reproduction. The if the correction is done the same way as the paper, do you want this first? Oh, no, you, you, <laughs> you can take this. <laughs> so if, if the correction of the baby is also done by his or her stem cells, his or her stem cells in the blood, then it's not, right? So if the correction is done in the germ cells, so the testes are the ovaries, right? And of course, in a child, you're, they're not really that active yet, right? So um, it... And I, at, at this stage of the game, my own personal feeling is, is if you can treat metabolic diseases and things like this, right, by modifying the blood cells, great, go for it, you know, enjoy it, perfect. But I would not let anyone touch my germ cell lines, <laughs> period. <laughs> hey, so, so since now... Since you're the, the person speaking about DNA, I can I can um, ask you the question that probably um, any theorist or, or um, philosopher might be curious about. Um, DNA, in what sense does it contain information? <laughs> I mean, in your opinion. You know, I, I, yeah. I know this is a, you know, not necessarily. What would, you know, biochemists say, you know, in yeah. your experience of this kind of thing? Gosh, I really can't speak on behalf of biochemists because I, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't thought about it. Um, but yeah, the, the information, of course, is um, because we ultimately get a product made out of it in, um, in the form of a protein. So there has to be something there to give the instructions to, uh, to make that. Um, I'm speaking from ignorance here. So uh, on one of your slides, it mentioned the central dogma of molecular mm -hmm. biology. Mm -hmm. And I saw that mentioned in a couple of the articles too that were sent out. And from what I could tell from the slide, it was that the information always flows from DNA, RNA to protein. Is that correct? Or what exactly is the central dogma? Yeah, you, that is correct. But there are um, exceptions to it. Yeah, so HIV would be a great example because uh, its genome is RNA. Um, and so that RNA, though, does get um, made into DNA, and that's what it gets integrated into the human genome, is the DNA. Um, with that in mind, then, yeah, that's a, I'm interested to hear that example. How are the ways in which that's being challenged today, um, and, and from what fields is it coming from? Because um, I know the article that, that was sent out, too, was also challenging that notion that this is always the way that there, there's no... Um, uh, there's no modification in the other direction, and that actually is false. That there is a modification in the other direction, oftentimes. So I'm wondering if um, uh, if you could speak to other examples in which uh, this is being challenged and revised in in light of new understandings in in either biochemistry or or other fields of biology. Um, honestly, somehow I did not get the packet of um, information to read, so I don't know um, what was what was in that. Sorry about that. <laughs> that might be my fault. I apologize. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so save your question for later. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, I just wanted to follow on the earlier question about information because uh, as a biochemist, it seems to me you might be especially able to answer the question in a specific way. Um, if you, take, if you take the word information as first applying to human life, where there's something which um, signifies something and brings to, brings to, there's a mind involved in reading or in understanding language, um, it seems that at the biochemical level, you have these base pairs in the DNA, but the process by which those pairs produce the end result protein that's a completely physical and, and, and biochemical process, right? Would, is that not how the process, it doesn't work through uh, a mind within the cell reading and understanding something, but it functions at a chemical level. So in that sense, information would be, if we say information, we're using that term loosely rather than specifically. 
or do you disagree, disagree with that? I would say yes, because of the way of the organization of it, um, with the little diagram that I had. Uh, yeah, but anyways, the, the little scheme I had, but yes, what happens at the DNA level does have a phenotype usually um, at the level of the organism. Yeah, if that is, makes sense. Um, oh. And there is, a, there is a famous paper in physics called Information is Physics. <laughs> and of course, there is another paper coming from another researcher saying information is not physics. <laughs> so the debate is there. The debate is there. But at least from the point of view of quantum, of quantum information, info, you can use physical systems to store information and physical process to retrieve it. So you don't need a mind. Um, if I could ask maybe uh, what, one last question and then we'll take our break and then open up to, uh, um, uh, we'll have more time for lots of questions after we, uh, in the next talk too, um, in, or after all the talks. So you mentioned, um, I want to go back, you said something about that the, there are fewer structures in proteins than there are, like, like the complexity of the structure is less, there's sort of, there, there, yeah, there, it is less complex than the the the, the primary or yeah, this is the full things one. So, so then, it, um, it are, is that to say that there are lots of different proteins that are doing the same job, um, or is it or or, it, or is it the case that you know when life you know sort of yeah like how is it how is it that we understand that like these different lines of information ended up giving us the same, like doing the same job, I guess. Does that, does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there are certain cases where uh, there are proteins that there's only one that does it, but in the human genome, there is a redundancy that is built in. Uh, so if we look at DNA polymerases that I talked about, uh, there's 16 of them. So do we really need 16 DNA polymerases to replicate the human genome? Uh, the answer is no, there's about five of them that are really highly active. Uh, the other ones are really in specialized circumstances. Um, but they all have the same, uh, well, the way that their structure has been likened is to a right hand. Um, so they all have that same overall uh, shape to them. How how different is the primary structure between them? Like if you I don't know, tried, tried to quantify that, I mean, is it, I mean is, it, is it just like, oh, this is missing a little bit here, just replace this with that? Or is it like, I mean, if you just wrote down the primary structure, could you see the pattern at all? Or is it only when you actually work out how it's going to fold that you realize there's a pattern? Um, so there are programs that will uh, go from primary to secondary structure. And so the accuracy of that isn't too bad. And so you can have a general idea of what, what it is based on that level. Um, so that contributes to it, but also the catalytic residues, those are the ones that are conserved. Um, they do not change. And so you can also uh, find things based upon residues that are um, invariable. All right, let's take a moment to, to, to thank Dr. Brown.